if there's one truth that I have clinged to more than others over the past few months and even past few years, it is the fact, the concrete fact, that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail, period. You can bank on it, 100%. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear that. Christ is building his church, period. You can't bet on the stock market. You can't put your hope in the GameStop stock. You, you, you don't even know what the next big political craze is going to be, what, what the next big passion of our culture is going to be. You have no clue who's going to win the Super Bowl a week from today, although we probably have a good guess that it's probably Tom Brady because he just happens to do that. Probably. But I know this for a fact, that Christ is building his church. He's doing it. The God who created this world, the God who created this earth, the God who spoke it into being, he will do what he said he will do. He is doing what he said he would do. And he will continue to do what he said he would do until he returns. And perhaps the most perplexing thing about that statement <laughs> is that he uses people like you and me to accomplish that. Feeble, fickle, weak, inadequate, unintelligent, arrogant people like me and you. Christ, that's a strategy. The all-sovereign God of all creation who could accomplish it however he wants. He uses us. Isn't that amazing? I don't know why, but, but God has chosen in his wisdom he would receive the most glory by using us. That's why. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's not the plan that I would have come up with. But God in his wisdom does that. And you could bank on it. That God is using people like us, Community Bible Church, and this local congregation right now to build his Church, does that excite you? I hope so. I hope that excites you. Because oftentimes I, I sit in my home or I'll sit in my study as I've been preparing this message, I guess, for like eight weeks now. <laughs> and I, I just wonder... Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that Christ is building his church right now, even through the preaching of this message? That Christ is building his church through Wednesday night discussion, through the discipleship of my children at home, that God is using us, and he's, he's doing that. Because the world looks crazy right now. The world looks absolutely crazy. 
I mean, take the stock market out of it. Like we, we, we are living in a culture where it's, we're not just called to be tolerant of a man who says he wants to be a woman and he feels that he's a woman and he wants, we're called in our culture, in our day, we're, we're called to celebrate that fact. Fact, in quotations. We're called to celebrate that. Like our grandparents never would have, would have conceived of the idea that I'm a, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. We're an overly sexually explicit culture that loves arrogance, that loves pride, that loves sex on TV, that loves dishonesty, that loves boasting. We love ourselves. And yes, that's Republican Party, and yes, that's Democrat Party. It's Fox News, it's CNN. And it's often infiltrated the church as well, so don't think that we are above this church. It looks like the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And it's easy for us to get scared. It's easy for us to to start, you know, thinking, well, Christ isn't going to do what he said he would do. So so we just kind of, we sit down, and maybe we just got to shut up and be quiet. And maybe God might move. You know, diseases are going to come. Bad politicians are going to come. But you know, maybe, no church, God's called us to be faithful. God's called us to have courage. God's called us not to have to put the faith in ourselves and our abilities and our personalities and our intelligence, but to put our faith in where he said it should be all along in Christ. Because Christ is the one who builds this church. My main point this morning, kind of piggy, piggybacking off of that idea, is that Jesus, our Savior, Jesus does extraordinary things through extraordinary people. Jesus does extraordinary things through extraordinary people. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 6. Yes, we're still there. We'll be there a few more weeks. We're going to be in verses 12 through 16 today. Originally when, originally when we were kind of planning out the preaching schedule, we, this wasn't meant it wasn't planned to be a, a sermon in and of itself, uh, but the more we talked about it, we kind of felt like this, we felt like maybe this, this passage could be edifying for the body. And so, therefore, I pray that it is. God and His sovereignty usually works things out that way. Um, but we're going to talk about the apostles this morning. We're going to talk about the, the calling of these ordinary men. And um, we're going to kind of be all over the place but I, I owe a, a, a great deal of, of my sermon prep to, to two books that I, I would recommend. Uh, Twelve Ordinary Men by John MacArthur. Have you, anybody read this book? Great book. Great book. I, I would highly recommend it. Um, How the Master Shaped His Disciples for Greatness and What He Wants to Do with, with You. Great, great book um, by Dr. John MacArthur. Um, this, uh, this book is by Lockyer, and it's All the Apostles of the Bible. 
and I was at uh, Southern Seminary taking some classes this past week, and they have the best bookstore I've ever been in. Love it. It's my favorite. It's like half the reason I want to go to the seminary is to go to the bookstore. And uh, this book was, was used. It was $10, and, um, but it, it, is, it is really rich of, of, uh, about the, the apostles. Uh, it, it's actually a lot, a lot more detailed than, than MacArthur. And actually, the more I, I read this first, and I read this second, and I, and I kind of realized that MacArthur got a lot of his material out of this book. So um, pretty, pretty good resources if you're looking for them. Um, because I, I, I can't even—this is just such a— 40,000-foot view of the apostles this morning. We can't possibly do it justice. So um, may some important truths bubble to the top of the prep. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 6. Let's read verses 12 through 16. And these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter. And Andrew, his brother. And James. And John. And Philip. And Bartholomew. And Matthew. And Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus. And Simon, who was called the Zealot. And Judas, the son of James. And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. May God bless the reading of his word. Jesus does extraordinary things through extraordinary people. Point one. Jesus chooses men for a specific purpose. Jesus chooses men for a specific purpose. I love this passage. All these different names, all these different men, all these different personalities, all these different gifts, all these different backgrounds. We'll talk about that in a second. But we, our, our minds can, can immediately kind of go to these apostles. But I want to zero in for a moment on verse 12. Jesus has already been ministering. He's been revealing himself as the Messiah. He's been doing miracles. He's been uh, getting into trouble with the religious leaders of that time. But yet his ministry is fruitful. You, You see that? Jesus has crowds following him. People are encouraged by who he is. People are mad about who he is, both, both and, right? Um, it seems to be going well with just Jesus doing all the ministry, though, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus has got this. He shows up. He preaches. Jesus shows up. He does miracles. He gets the glory. Doesn't seem to need any help. Doesn't need any administration help, you know. I mean, maybe you could say he needed to hop in that boat when he was preaching by the sea. You know, say, can I, can I borrow your boat? So they go out in the boat, and Jesus preaches from the, from the boat to the shore, to, to all the people on the shore. But Jesus has got this, doesn't he? But in his sovereignty... Jesus is going to build his church. He, he chooses these men, but, but before he does in verse 12, what does he do? He went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. That's our Savior, folks. 
Do you, maybe this week in, in your study of God's word or um, in your prayer time or whatnot, maybe you, maybe you would pray something like, I just, Lord, I want you to make me more and more like Christ. And, and, and maybe within that prayer, you're, you're praying that you would be more humble, which would certainly make you more like Christ. You'd be more loving, you'd be more bold, that you would speak the truth, that you would serve. Those are all great prayers. But, but see our Savior in this moment. See as, as he's in the midst of this really large and important decision of calling his apostles, that he prays. And it's not a quick prayer. It's not a, Father, help me, thank you, amen. He prays all night. All night. He stays up fellowshipping with the Father all night. He said, my fellowship with the Father is more important than my sleep. Now, Jesus didn't stay up every night, so I don't put that upon you. To stay up every single night, and you got to pray, don't ever sleep, don't ever eat, don't ever, no. But Jesus, as we, as we see through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is a man of prayer. Consistent, a consistent prayer life characterizes our Savior. If we want to be like Christ, we, we will be people who pray. So Christian, let me ask you, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? How consistent is it? Does it exist at all? Do your prayers simply consist of praying for dinner when family and friends come over? Or are we spending time in fellowship with our Lord in the study of his word and praying to him, pouring out our hearts to him, praising him, worshiping him. May we be people of prayer because Jesus was a man of prayer. You want a good reason? There it is, right there. You want to be like Jesus? Be a man, be a woman of prayer. Seek God, praise God, pour your heart out to God. Some of us want to use like Facebook as a diary no, friends, go pull your heart out to God. He cares. He listens. He hears you. The God of all creation, he hears us when we pray. Do you believe that? If we really do, if we really understood that, we would be people of prayer. But as Jesus does, he, he prays and he spends all night and he continues in prayer to God. And then the morning comes. The day, the day came and he called his disciples. Did you see that there in 13? Verse 13, he called his disciples. Now, when I was a kid, I, I grew up and I thought that Jesus only had 12 disciples. Maybe you think that. Jesus had more than 12 disciples. At this point, Jesus has a large group of disciples, and he calls them all together to himself. As, as it says there in 13, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. This is, he had disciples at large, and he has this smaller, more intimate group that he's going to call, and that he's going to call for a specific purpose. Verse 13 says that he called them, he named them apostles. 
apostles. And this, this word apostle, it is, it is meant to convey a, a special messenger, a commissioned messenger. Let me think of, think of it like as a commissioned position messenger for a specific purpose. It would be like the messenger of a king who was sent with a specific type of authority, a specific type of voice, specific message for a specific purpose. He, th- these commissioned individuals were a part of the larger group of disciples as a whole, but they were brought in for a specific task, for a specific purpose. They weren't more special. They weren't holier. They weren't more useful. They weren't more intelligent. They weren't like a higher pedigree than the rest of the disciples. God in his sovereignty chose these 12. He doesn't tell us why. He never tells us why. He just chose them. And he chose them for a reason, but that's up to God. But we do know this, that we don't know, while we don't know the reason he chose these specific men, we do know why he created this 12, this group of 12, these these apostles. In Mark 3, 14 through 15, these would be a group of messengers who would preach and would cast out demons. Lord would use them in a specific way for preaching and for casting out demons. And we see this when we go to the book of Acts. We see the apostles. We see the apostles preaching, and we see the apostles doing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the book of Acts is, we say it's the Acts of the Apostles, and really the better way of phrasing the book of Acts is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. The Holy Spirit continues to work miraculously through these 12 men. And when we think about the Apostles, we often think of these giants in the faith. And they are giants in the faith. They were faithful men. They were faithful men who did what Christ called them to do. But oftentimes, we can make too much of the apostles. We can. Like, think of the Catholic Church. They say, well, we've got this pope who's had this line of intercession all the way back from Peter. They make much of that. A lot of cults will make much of that. I mean, our our faith is an apostolic faith. We, you know, Christ did use these apostles to build his church. He did. But God's plan for his, to, to, to build his church was not, the, the main plan for God to build his church was not apostles with a capital A. That was a one generation plan. God's plan to build his church is the local church, local congregations, established originally by these apostles. Do you notice that in the pastoral epistles, as Paul writes to Titus and Paul writes to Timothy, he doesn't say, go establish other capital A apostles. He doesn't say, go establish popes. He doesn't say, go establish, you know, these big Christian superheroes who are going to do all the work. He says, yo, Timothy, go teach men who can teach other men who can teach other men who can teach. That's, other men. That's God's plan. 
It wasn't super Christians. It wasn't some like, you know, Christian form of the Avengers. It's local church. God's plan to build the church is local churches. Isn't that exciting? Like maybe you think, I just wish I could have been an apostle. I wish I could have been the one who was preaching and and doing miracles. That's not God's main plan. This is God's main plan. You are God's main plan. You, yes you, if you are part of Community Bible Church, you are part of God's main plan. It's not just the preaching. It's not just like me and Matt and Doug and Tom. It's not just the elders. You. You are gifted. You are equipped. And you are called to make disciples to, as Christ builds his church. You are every bit as important to the building of the kingdom as the apostles were. Do you believe that? I hope you see that. I hope you know that. But yet, in, 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 even in light of that, we, we do see here that Jesus uses these men for a specific purpose. For the establishment of the early church. Preaching about their experiences with Jesus Christ. The Lordship of Christ. How Christ was the Messiah. Preaching that, that, that he was dead, but now he's alive. Preaching that he would come again. Establishing the doctrine of the early church. Most of our epistles are, are written by apostles. The doctrine of the church. That's what they did. They established it and got out of the way. Jesus chose these men for a specific purpose. Next we see that Jesus chooses a normal group of men. Normal. They were so completely normal. Jesus didn't choose any scribes who were experts in the law. Jesus didn't choose any Pharisees. Jesus didn't choose any religious leaders. Jesus didn't choose any priests. He didn't choose any politicians. Jesus chooses completely normal men. If you and I were going to start a company right now, I promise you this, we would not have chosen anybody that Jesus chose. Nobody. You know, it's, I've been doing, we've been, by I, I've been paying someone to renovate our basement, to finish our basement. And you know, it's interesting because my, our contractor, he, he's got his flooring guy, he's got his HVAC guy, he's got his electrician and whatever else he's got, I don't know. Drywall. I just, I just signed the checks. I have no clue about any of that stuff. But he's got his guy. And these guys are experts in their specific fields. And I'm glad that my contractor is using experts in their specific fields for this specific purpose. But in this moment, 
the type of guys that Jesus chooses for his specific purpose, they're not experts. They're not religious experts. They're not, and they're not very smart men. They're blue-collar guys. They're not men of high character. Most of them are from Galilee. Not a very smart town. Not a town of great renown. This is the type of people that Christ uses. Turn, 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 and, and this is the type of people that God has always used. These are the type of situations God has always worked in. Not like big and glamorous, exciting to the world. Not worldly wisdom. Not worldly ways. God works in these small ways that only bring him glory. You see that? That's the way, that's the way Christ most often works. Turn, turn, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. I know we, I know, we know this passage. 1, 1 Corinthians 1. Let's, let's be reminded of this. I, I know, again, I know we know this passage. Listen to what the, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness. It's dumb. It's crazy. It doesn't make sense to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is glorious. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what, of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's our message, church. Our Savior crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see this? Our message to the world is a foolish message. We can't ever package up the gospel so effectively and so beautifully that it will ever be pleasing to the world. If you do, it's not the true gospel. If you do, it's not the true gospel. Paul says, the word of the cross is foolishness to the world. Our message to the world is a foolish message. Church, stop trying to fight for the affections of the world. If you do, you're taking an approach that is antithetical to that of Christ and the apostles. Our message is a foolish message. But not only that, read this. <laughs> We're a bunch of foolish people. We're dumb people. We're inadequate people. We're unimportant people. Listen, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Church, Christ chooses the foolish, folly, irrelevant people in the world to bring him glory. Amen. Amen. Christ has built this church. Christ will build his church through such people like you and me and like these apostles here. It started with the apostles. There, here's his blueprint. You want to know his blueprint? Here, here it is right here. Completely normal people. And they're not just normal. They're diverse. They're diverse. They're super diverse. They have different backgrounds. Different backgrounds. We think about Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen. They were blue collar. I've said it before. They're in the food industry. I love it. I love some folks that are in the food industry. They're in the food business, like me and Bill. Aaron, Hunter. We got some food industry guys. Even Cameron's a little bit in the food industry back there. We got this. I can relate to those guys. Their jobs, their jobs were important. People had to eat. They went fishing. These guys probably smelled like fish. They're probably rough and tough and had calloused hands. Probably weren't the smartest guys in the world, but they worked hard. Jesus, as he was taking these guys who were going to take the gospel to the nations and establish the early church. He said, you know what? I need some fishermen. I need some fishermen. These guys who probably can't even read. These guys who, you know, aren't particularly smart, aren't particularly good looking. I'm going to choose guys like that. And I'm going to put them in a, in a group with guys like Matthew, who's a tax collector. A guy who, who had terrible character. A guy who would cheat his fellow Jews in order to make a buck. We talked about this a few weeks ago. A guy working for Rome. A guy who was likely filthy rich because he was cheating his fellow Jews. We also got Simon. Simon the Zealot. Most of us don't know about the Zealot party. We've heard of the Pharisees, we've heard of the Sadducees, and, and these different types of sects that, that emerged in the intertestamental period. One of those others was the Zealots, and they were the most zealous in their hatred for Rome. These guys made Antifa look like a little kid's birthday party. They were political activists obsessed with the destruction of Rome. They really were terrorists. They would plot assassinations of Roman's official, Roman officials, and likely they would have killed people like Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus says, toss one of those guys in there too. Jesus takes this group of apostles and it's diverse. We could go on and on. These guys are all from different backgrounds. As he's creating this group of 12, these apostles, these messengers, these special commission messengers of the king, he sends them out, and he says, I'm going to get all these people from all these different backgrounds, all these different skills, none of renown, none of great intelligence, but here they are. This is what I, these are the people I'm going to use. And you know what, church? 
Christ still does that today. I think about our church and our local church and how different we are, how, how different our backgrounds. I know Dave this morning prayed for, for Rob. Like, Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, came to know the Lord in prison, right? I hope that's right, because, yeah, that's right. And the Lord has used him here, and the Lord has used him overseas to preach the gospel with, with Pat. You know, Pat's got, a, uh, the Lord saved him out of Catholicism, right? And here he is, an elder in a Protestant church, serving our local body, preaching the gospel around the world. I know we've got other folks in here. We've got, we've got folks, you know, like, like, like James and, and Doug, who, whose families grew up in this church. They've been discipled in the church their whole lives. We've got Matt. Matt, I think you said uh, this past week, you, like a few years ago, you were, you were a hip-hop dancer in, in California. Is that correct? I, I think I heard yes. And so we, we, we've, got, we've got a diverse group. Bill, Bill he, he, he grew up uh, basically kind of on the streets for a good portion of his life. And he always tells us a story. I hope this is appropriate. But he used to have a gold tooth with a Playboy bunny on it. And so, sorry, you can laugh if you want to. But uh, the Lord has saved him. And look, he's, he's discipling this beautiful family of his over here. And the Lord's using him in this church, and the Lord's using him at Chick-fil-A. You think about these diverse backgrounds in our church. We have folks that come from broken families. We have folks that come from very faithful families. We have first-generation Christians. We have a long line of Christian families in here. The Lord takes people from diverse backgrounds, rich, poor, black, white, single, married, and the Lord takes such people and he builds his local church that way. Praise God for that. Praise God that not everyone has the same story and everyone has the same experience. Not everybody looks the same. Praise God for that. God in his sovereignty built his church that way. May we praise our differences, church. May we praise it. May we praise God for, for, for who he's put in our lives. People with different perspectives. People with, with different ideas. People with different passions. People with different expertises. Praise God for that. That's God's sovereignty at work. Do you see that? So when you see a, somebody who doesn't look like you in our church, doesn't think like you in our church, praise God for that. Praise God for that. Amen? Not just different backgrounds, different personalities. Different personalities. As, as you study the gospel, of Luke, you study the other gospels as well, we, we see all these different types of apostles with different personalities. Like I think of Thomas and and. And when you think of Thomas, what's the description you think of Thomas? What Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Thomas was pessimistic. Thomas was like the Eeyore of the group. Thomas was the guy who was always going to, you know, in the story of, in, 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 in uh, John chapter 11, as Lazarus is dying, Lazarus has died, and, and, and Jesus went to go to see the group, and then he was going to, he says, let's go back to Judea, and there's a po- uh, the rest of the apostles say, don't go back to Judea, they'll kill you there. They wanted to stone you there. And then, and then Thomas says, well, we should just go back to Judea with him then so that we may die too. Like, just kind of this pessimistic, like, you know, not trusting Christ. It, he, he's the guy who said in John 20, 25, he said, as, as the rest of the apostles are coming back and saying, Jesus is alive, we've seen him, and they're, and they're uh, giving a testimony of that. He says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. That's Thomas, doubting Thomas. The, the, the church can be full of people 
like Thomas, who tend to doubt sometimes, who tend to struggle, who tend to be pessimistic. But maybe we don't look at Thomas. We can also look at the polar opposite. We look at a guy like Peter, somebody like Peter. I love Peter. Peter's bold. Peter, Peter's the fisherman. He's, he's, he's the manly man. His kind of motto is, 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 uh, is shoot, ready, aim. That's kind of, kind of where he's at. He's, he's the leader of the group in all of the uh, list of the apostles and all of the, in all the gospels. Peter's name is always uh, mentioned first. Peter seems to have a, kind of be, he's kind of viewed as the leader of the church. He's, people kind of look to him. He's the one who would jump out of the boat looking at Jesus and he would kind of walk on water. Then he'd start to sink because, you know, that's how Peter is. He would, he would kind of lose faith. He's, he's the one who took out a sword and cut off a Roman soldier's ear. Peter was always the first to ask questions to Jesus. What do you mean, Jesus? He, he would always put his foot in his mouth. He would always talk, always talkative, never being quiet. He's, he wasn't the first to always ask questions. He's always quick to give answers to, okay? He's the one who says, Jesus, I would never deny you. And he was the one who denied Jesus three times. Peter was bold. Peter was a leader. Peter talked. Peter was out front. Peter liked being out front. Peter was the first to volunteer. We also see John. John was not like Peter. John was gentle. John was considered the loving disciple. Probably a little more quiet. Probably a little more softer spoken. As, as Doug was preaching the past few weeks, it in his epistles, we see words in John's writing, my little children. He used affectionate words. He, uh, what, what I, what I, what's interesting about John's epistles versus like Paul's epistles, and, and, and you kind of get this from the Greek, um, is that John uses very simplistic language. If you're going to go study Greek in an academic format, the very first book you're going to study is the book of 1 John. It's very simple. It's not complex language like Paul's writings. Paul's are rather complex for, for the most part. John, John, John was a simple man, and John wrote in absolutes. I like that. Paul's got like Romans 8, Romans 9. Paul, Paul, Paul's got these Ephesians 2, these beautiful, Ephesians 1, these are beautiful, beautiful passages. And, and John's like, you know, this is how you'll know you're walking in the light. If you love your brother. If you love your brother, you're walking in life. If you don't, you're not. That'll preach. That'll preach. That's John. He's straightforward. I mean, not, he's not rough. He's not rude. He's just he's black and white. He sees it like it is. And then, and then we, we've got Thomas. We've got Peter. We've got John. Another one I'll mention. We've got Philip. Philip of the group. He, Philip was the bean counter. We've got, we got, uh, you know, we've, we've got some administrators in the room. Yeah, Cameron. Got the, the bean counter. You can relate to Philip. Philip was the administrator of the group. When it, when it came to feeding the 5,000, Philip, as Jesus said to feed the group, Philip says, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? He says, 200 worth of denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. He was already giving these cal calculations in his head of like, I got to know how many days wages. I got to know where to go buy the bread. I've got, like, I'll, I'll do it, but I don't know how we're going to make this happen. So, we've, you know, I've got to look at the, the, the blueprints here. I've got to, you know, how much money do we have? He's, he was the administrator of the group. We got all these different personalities. 
We've got bold personalities. We've got doubting personalities. We've got, we've got quiet, gentle personalities. We've got administrators. We've got leaders. We've got, you know, all of these type of people that the Lord used. Different types of personalities. And just like different backgrounds, the Lord in his sovereignty in our church, Community Bible Church, the Lord has given us different personalities. Some of us are loud. I'd probably fall into that group. And some of you guys are quiet. Some of you guys are bold. Some of you guys are not bold. Some of you guys are very compassionate. Some of you guys will charge into battle, fearless of nothing. And the Lord takes all these different types of personalities and he uses them for his glory. And he, and he uses them to build his church. And it's easy for some of us, like, I mean, I, one, of the, one of the biggest regrets that I, that I had probably in my younger 20s is I thought that everybody had to be, like, if you weren't, like, bold and outspoken and, like, loud, that you weren't a real man. You weren't, you know, the, that, that, that wasn't real masculinity. I kind of fell into, like, the Mark Driscoll trap a little bit. And uh, the reality is, masculinity has nothing to do with your personality. So one time I, I, you know, I called a man passive because I thought he was passive because he wasn't loud and outspoken, but he faithfully led his family. He, was a, he made, you know, disciples in his local church. He was a very, very, very faithful man. So my perspective was that everybody had to be like the person that I appreciated. And isn't that how we can often be in the church? Is that everybody has to be like me. Every personality has to be like my personality. Because my personality is the right personality. The way I say things is the right way to say them. The way I speak, it's the right way to say it. At this volume, with this level of passion, with this level of whatever. For often, you know, think about a lot of the, when we think about a lot of the, the problems that we have within our local body, disunity or things of that nature, oftentimes the problem is a problem of personality. Someone's personality rubs us the wrong way. And yes, there is a way that like, that, you know, that the Bible tells us to speak with certain types of words and, and that, that we should demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, yes, yes. But God uses loud people, soft people, passionate people, softer spoken people, gentle people. God uses all of them. We should see that in his word. We're not a people who is united because of our personalities. And so even on our preach team, you're going to see different personalities. One of the, one of the main criticisms I've gotten is you've got, to, you've got to turn down the volume a bit. Okay, well, this is who I am. I'm sorry. Learn to love it, and I'll do my best. Go see me at CrossFit. I'm just as loud. And you've got Tom, who's softer spoken, and, D- and Dave, who's softer spoken, and Matt, who's kind of somewhere in the middle. All right? Praise God for that, right? Praise God for that. They had different backgrounds. They had different personalities. Here's one that I'll mention because I think it's important. They likely had different political beliefs. That might bother some of you. Because some of you might think that within our group, the most important thing that we have in common is political beliefs. Well, the Lord 
in his sovereignty, chose Simon the Zealot, who gave his life before coming to Christ, to adamantly fight against Rome and to kill people who fought for them. That's what the Zealot Party did. Now, I don't know if there was any blood on Simon's hands, but I know that's, for a fact, that's what the Zealot Party did. That's the group that, that Simon ran with. And I know that Matthew, the tax collector, worked for Rome. He got rich off of Rome. He didn't have a problem with Rome. He probably looked at the roads that they were building and were like, this is pretty good. This is pretty cool what they're doing. Pretty, and and, and, and he, he fought for Rome. Two people on the polar opposite end of the political spectrum. Jesus, in his sovereignty, chooses such people and makes them apostles. Doesn't just make them disciples. Makes them apostles. Church, even today, the Lord is bigger than our political opinions. The Lord still chooses people and uses people who might disagree about fiscal policy. About how to best handle the virus. God is so much bigger than that. Our unity is not in Republican or Democrat. Our unity is in Christ. That's where our unity comes from. And if you think that like Simon and Matthew never had any discussions about Rome, you're probably wrong because they're people with real opinions. But here's the reality. Their unity came because of Christ, not because of Rome. Their unity came because of Christ, not because of their personalities. Their unity came because of Christ, not because of their background. They were unified in their relationship to Christ, and that is the most important thing. That's where their unity came from. And this, as we see, while they had there some arguments, this was a unified group. And, and, and church, what I want us to see is that our unity comes in Christ. Our unity is a result of who we are in Christ. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 11, we see, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hand, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, you could not have been more different. You could not have been more polar opposite. And, and that's even being simplistic. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, not by political opinion, not by personality, but by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's our unity. 
See personality in there? Did you, say, did, did you see that we were unified because we're, we're going to have a group of singles over here unified because they're single and a group of people over here who are unified because they're married? That we've got, they're unified over here because they're youth group. They're unified over here because they're black. They're unified over here because they're white. No. Where does our unity come from, church? Our unity comes to our relationship to Christ, who we are in Christ. That is where our unity comes from. We have to constantly remind ourselves of that. We have to fight for that. Because when we think our unity comes from politics, we miss the point. It's blasphemy, quite honestly. It's blasphemy. It's false teaching we must repent of. Our unity comes in Christ. They were unified in Christ. And because they were unified in Christ, they were unified in purpose. They were unified in purpose. Their purpose was the preaching of the gospel and, and making of disciples. In the book of Acts, we see this. What do they do? They go and preach. And they go do miracles. That's what they do. So the, they establish the local church. They evangelize. They, they, they baptize. They build the local church. They teach men who can teach men. They plant churches. They produce elders. That's what they do. They would take the baton and run. That was what they were called to do. This group of apostles, they were called to preach and do miracles according to Mark. That's what they do in Acts. Even when it came to like, hey, there's, the, there's this problem with, with, uh, with the widows who aren't being fed. The apostles don't say, well, let us hop in. They say, no, y'all deal with that because we were called for this specific purpose. We were commissioned for this specific purpose. Does it mean it's not important? It means that, there's the Lord, that there are those whom the Lord has called to do this specific job. Do it. But we're called for this purpose. And they were unified in that. What's amazing is if you look at church history, how, uh, how these disciples, these apostles, they went and they planted churches all throughout the area. They started to reach the world with the gospel. It's amazing. They were unified. These people who were so diverse and so different, all of a sudden, because of their relationship to Christ, are unified in purpose. It's amazing. And here they are, they're not just unified in their purpose. They're unified, listen, church, in their suffering. They're unified in their suffering. James, for instance, we find in Acts chapter 12 that it, he was killed by Herod Agrippa I, according to the early church father, Clement of Alexandria, the man who was sent to capture James. Ultimately, upon James's trial and the hearing of James's testimony, repented of his sin, confessed his sin to Christ, but confessed his sin to James, asked for forgiveness, and was crucified right next to James. He was beheaded. What about Thomas? Thomas planted churches in India before being shot with an arrow out on the mission field. Simon the Zealot, he traveled through Africa preaching the gospel before being crucified in Britannia. Bartholomew, he, he preached to the Indians and spent a great deal of time as a Bible translator translating the scriptures that they had at the time for the Indians. 
Ultimately, he was tortured for Christ. They tried to crucify him, didn't work, so they ultimately beheaded him. Judas, the son of James, church history tells us that he was likely clubbed to death after taking the gospel to Mesopotamia. Andrew, he was crucified by Agias, the governor of Edessa. Here's what Andrew did. Andrew, as he, as he stood before the governor, he, he told him that unless he repented of his sin, that he would face the wrath of God. That was his message to the governor. And as he approached the cross, as he was condemned to death, Andrew did so joyfully, saying, I come to the cross being a scholar of him who did hang on it. Matthew, we, we know that he wrote the gospel of Matthew, and he converted many to the faith in Ethiopia and Egypt. Ultimately, Hyrcanus the king sent a soldier to kill Matthew with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, he took the gospel to Syria and to Persia before being stoned to death. The great bean counter Philip, he spent time preaching to barbarous nations and ultimately was crucified and stoned to death. Peter, he was forced to watch his wife be martyred in front of his own eyes where he encouraged her and he consoled her, spoke of the glories that awaited her for, because of who she was in Christ. And then he was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified the same way that Christ was crucified. He did that after a long ministry there in Rome. And then finally we, we see John. We know that John was a prolific writer of Scripture. And he was an evangelist. But ultimately he was exiled to Patmos where ultimately he would die in prison. And in prison, he wrote the book of Revelation. You want to be used by Christ? You want to be great? Does your heart long to be great for the kingdom? Does your heart long to be used by Christ? There's a long history of men and women who have been used by Christ. And there's two characteristics. Faithfulness and suffering. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? Your life will be marked by faithfulness and suffering. Take up your cross and follow Christ. You want to be used? Don't expect a pat on the back from the world. Don't expect a hug from the world. Don't expect the world to think well of you. You're expecting more than James, Thomas, Simon, Bartholomew, Judas, Andrew, Matthew, James, Philip, Peter, John, and our Savior, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus gave us a strategy. Go preach the gospel. Be holy for I am holy. And expect suffering. 
expect persecution. Church, we must be unified. Must. I'm not one of these like conspiracy theory guys. I'm not one of these guys that thinks everything's a sign that the Lord's coming back again. I'm, I'm just not. But here's the reality. I do believe in our culture that we are about to experience a time of great persecution. Just the things that I'm reading, if like people say they're going to do what they say they're going to do, or people do what they say they're going to do, then we're about to experience a great time of persecution. And we don't have time for like this half-hearted Christianity, half-hearted commitment to the church, half-hearted commitment to one another, half-hearted commitment to Christ. We don't have time for that. We must be a people who are unified, and not unified because of politics, not, unif- not unified because how we handle social media, not unified because of how we educate our kids, not unified of our sports teams or our, our age or our marital status. We must be unified because of who we are in Christ. We must fight for it. We must fight, church. This is a war. We must fight. Christ is bigger than our differences. Christ is bigger than our differences, church. We must fight. We must be there for one another. I don't know about you, but I want to give my lives for people who want to give their lives for the gospel. I want to know that if one of us ends up in jail, if one of us ends up unemployed, that we've got a church who's stepping in and loving one another and serving one another in the midst of that. And it's not because we're white. And it's not because we're married. It's not because we're rich or because we're funny. We might be a pain in the butt, but you know what? We're in Christ. And that's why we serve one another. But lastly, we see point three quickly. Jesus chose Judas to accomplish his will. Jesus chose Judas. If you've been a Christian long enough, you know this, that Judas is the one, as it always talks about, he's the one who betrayed Jesus. Jesus knew what he was doing when he chose Judas. Jesus wasn't caught by surprise. The rest of the disciples were. As Jesus talked about the Last Supper and he was saying that one would betray him, nobody knew who he was talking about except for Jesus and Judas. They both knew. Judas tricked everybody. He was able to trick all these godly men into thinking he was somebody that he's not. But Jesus, in his sovereignty and the fulfillment of prophecy that there would be one who would betray Jesus for silver, Jesus, in his sovereignty, chose such a man like Judas. Jesus used Judas. And what I find interesting in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, in a Sermon on the Mount, a sermon where, Je- where right, the sermon preached right after Jesus chooses his apostles. We'll kind of get to that next week. The apostles are sitting there, and they're sitting down right in the front. And in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Judas was sitting there in that sermon. And I'm confident Jesus had Judas in mind. Among others, 
among others. Do you love your sin? Do you love self-glory, self-exaltation, riches, money, comfort? Do you have any desire for godliness, holiness? Do you have any desire for Jesus? Do you have any desire to serve a local church body because of who we are in Christ? To pick up a broom, to pick up a shovel, to help someone move, to, to, to visit the sick, to pray? Do you have a desire for any of that? Or do you have a desire for glory? Self-glory, self-exaltation, comfort, riches, silver like Judas. If your life is marked by self, selfishness, if your, if your life is marked by hidden, unrepentant sin, you have every reason to ask yourself, am I like Judas? I'm a part of a congregation of people. I show up. And everybody thinks I'm a pretty good guy. Everybody thinks I'm a pretty good girl. They think much of me, but they have no clue what's going on in here. No clue what's going on in secret. Dear friend, you might be like Judas. And if that is you, dear friends, there is grace and mercy at the cross of Christ for you. Repent of your sin. Repent of your idolatry. Repent of your self-sufficiency. Repent of your love of self. Repent of your hatred of God. And look to Jesus Christ. Oh, see his goodness. See his grace. See his mercy. See his love for you. See what he did on the cross for sin. Paying the penalty once and for all. And, and take your eyes off yourself. Put your eyes on Christ. Trust in him. He will give you grace and he will save you. And he will make you a useful member of his kingdom for his glory. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Don't go, don't go on any longer trying to deceive everyone and deceiving yourself into thinking that you're a Christian if you're not. You will face the same fate as Judas, the traitor, eternity in hell, experiencing God's wrath forever. Repent and trust in Christ. But if you are in Christ, may we continue to look to Christ. May we continue to glory in the reality, church, that he will build his church. He will build his church. No matter what comes tomorrow, he will build his church. If Congress passes the Equality Act, you know what? He will build his church. If, if, if Congress outlaws the preaching of the gospel, whether tomorrow or 20 years from now, under a Republican governor, guess what? Christ will build his church. You know what? If, if our government outlaws homeschooling, guess what? Christ will build his church. If your family leaves you and abandons you, Christ will build his church church. You know why? Because it's Christ the one who does it. He's the one who does it. He's the one who builds it. Church, do you want to be a part of that? May we be faithful. May we find joy in that. May we not sit with our tail between our legs, all just so upset about the culture and, and where it's going, and you know, we're just, we're little Thomas sitting here being, we are on the winning side of history here because we are in Christ, and he wins it. Amen.